We have a, we have a guest speaker uh, this morning. Uh, he is a preacher, a campus evangelist. He preaches at over 100 college campuses across the U.S., Canada, Europe, and uh, Southeastern Asia, I believe. So he's been everywhere. He's on the Internet, and uh, he preaches on those campuses. It's a, it's a difficult job, but much needed in this day and age. So let's give a warm welcome to Tom Short. Come on up, Tom. Uh, you, you know what garden? You know what that's referring to is in Israel. There is a place called the Garden Tomb, and 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 it's, Jesus was crucified in Golgotha, and not, you know, a, a two minute walk away is where he was buried in the Garden Tomb, and and it's called the uh, the Garden Tomb. But now it's it was a grave, and now it's just a beautiful garden because you walk into the grave and uh, the tomb, and guess what you see in there. Nothing. That's one of the greatest times that it is to see nothing. He's risen from the dead. Anyway, I am so glad to be with you today. Again, my name is Tom Short, and and I uh, was introduced. We talk on college campuses, and I do. I'm also on the internet quite a bit with a daily devotional every day, uh, where I talk about the word and prayer for about 15 minutes on YouTube. And a little bit later, I'll show you where you can find me there if you like. But I'd like to, you know, Greg asked if I could speak on three questions that I. Maybe the top three questions I get asked out on campus. The more I thought about it, I said, well, can I just make it one? And Because uh, I think that will fill up my whole time to answer this one question, and I hope it will be encouraging to you. And today's question I'd like to ask, I get asked a lot, is what makes your religion better than anyone else's? You ever been asked that? In our day and age, people, we live in a pluralistic government, don't we? A pluralistic country. You're not required to have all of the same religion. You're not all required to have the same beliefs. You're not all required to even have the same politics. I, I don't know if you've noticed that. And, um, and there's a great variety, and we're taught, accept one another, be respectful, be tolerant, uh, and so forth. And that's fine when it comes to such things, how we get along with a people. But because the, this idea has bled over into the idea that there is no right or wrong, that because we want to be tolerant of people with different ideas, that there is no right idea, there is no wrong idea, and it is infiltrated right into this area of religion. As a matter of fact, I've talked to more than one college student who told me they came to college and they lost their faith, and the reason they did was because they met people who were different or had different beliefs and they, they were okay people. They weren't bad, evil, obnoxious, rude, murderous terrorists or anything like that. They had other beliefs, but they were decent people. And that caused them to lose confidence in the Christian faith and lose their faith and to believe that essentially all religions are the same. And all religions essentially teach the same thing. Question. The Christian religion, next, next slide here, the Christian religion is based on faith. The Christian religion is based on faith. True or false? Should I have a hand count here? People are always nervous to make, a, especially when they think, this must be a trick question because that's so obvious. That's so obvious, correct? How many would say, true, the Christian religion is based on faith? All right, a number of you, how many would say false, the Christian religion is not based on faith? Okay, we have a little bit of discrepancy here. I'm going to go with the second group. Now, before you knock me off as a heretic, I'm not saying the Christian religion is based on works, because we usually contrast faith and works, correct? And we say we're saved by grace through faith, not none of ourselves, not a matter of our works, it's a gift of God. I believe that. I'm not claiming otherwise. But I want to say this. The Christian religion is based on Jesus and the truths of who Jesus is. Faith connects me to that. It's kind of like saying, shall we say, if we like if you've got a, a lamp and the lamp has a light bulb in it but, and the electricity is turned on, how do you get it? You've got to plug it into the socket, right? But the cord isn't what provided the electricity. The cord just 
the, the electricity came from, I don't know, the power plant down the road somewhere. You've got to plug in to get access to it. Jesus is our Savior. When we plug into Him by faith, that's when we receive those benefits of salvation, forgiveness, justification, all of these things that come through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So I'm going to argue this. The Christian, the Christian religion is based on Jesus. It's based on something true about Jesus Christ, not based on faith. Part of the reason I say this, in our culture today, what do people understand faith to mean? Probably some of you are old enough to remember the show All in the Family. All right, those who are chuckling remember it, and those who aren't have, don't have no idea. But all in the family, Archie, Archie, who was famous for saying uh, very strong-willed things or very convinced of things that sometimes we laugh at, defined faith this way. He said, faith is believing something you know isn't really true. And you know what? A lot of people, that's what they think faith means. And when on a campus someone says to me, I can't have faith, what are they saying? They're defining faith in a way that I couldn't have it either. In other words, faith, they say, is to believe something you know can't be true. Faith is something that has no basis, no reason, no foundation. It's just you believe it because you want to believe. You believe it because you're weak. You have faith because you, you can't solve your own problems. And so you, in their minds, you turn to some imaginary God who's not really there to help you out with your weaknesses. And Oh, boy, oh, I don't like that description at all. To me, faith is believing what's true. I contend everybody has faith. You ever got on an airplane? Did you meet the pilot beforehand? Did you check the maintenance log? Did you make sure the gas, the, the, there's fuel in the plane? Uh-uh, I don't do any of that stuff. When I get on a plane, I walk back to my seat, and I sit down, and I fall asleep. You know? <laughs> but why? Because I have faith in Delta, or Southwest, or American, United. I don't fly Allegiance. But, um, <laughs> no, no, okay. But, um, but I have faith in the airlines. And so you believe that someone you don't even see, and you don't know these maintenance guys, are so taking care of this plane, that they can take you several miles up in the air, and you're going to land safely. I'm putting my life in the hands of someone I've never met. We've all got faith. In the Christian life, we have faith in God, faith in Jesus. You say, but I don't see him. Well, that's what faith is. Faith is, faith is not believing something that doesn't make sense. Faith is believing something you cannot see. That does not mean it doesn't make sense. There's all kinds of things none of us see, but we still, it's reason to believe in them, okay? What makes, what makes our religion any better? I'm going to argue this. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the Christian religion better. When a lot of people are asking us, why is your religion better? They think that truth in our day, and understand this, understand this about young people today, understand this maybe about yourself. There are a lot of people, truth is determined by how I feel rather than by what is factual and real get on certain social media and you see extreme examples of this, of people who no matter what facts you show them, they, have, they know how they feel, and they determine the truth based on their feelings rather than on the data, the information, what's real. And so a lot of people, when they say, what makes your religion any better? They're simply saying, hey, there's all kinds of religions that can make you feel better. There's all kinds of religions. If you need something, if you need a religion to tell you how to live, if you need a religion to tell you how to treat your, your neighbor, there's all kinds of religions can teach you that. And indeed, if that's all religion was about, then a lot of religions do have similarities. But somehow I thought religion has to do with, like, God and getting to heaven and, 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 and how's God going to judge me? See, many people think of religion, they just in the, shall we say, the horizontal, how I treat my neighbor. 
without realizing the heart of religion, Jesus said the great command is what? Our relationship to God. So, in our time we have this morning, I'd like to give you seven things about Jesus that are unique. Now, it's not my goal in this time to to put down or slander any other religion or religious leader. Although, at times, I'm going to make some comments today about some other religious leaders that might surprise you. Because it's true. It's true. And we don't want to be naive about what some of these other religions and their leaders do and believe and how they behave and so forth. I'm just going to be sharing something that are true to show the contrast. Because that's the question I get asked. What makes your religion any better? Well, to do so, I will need to contrast Jesus with the other religious leaders. Because you're asking for that contrast. And so, to some degree, we'll do that today. uh, Because I was surprised when I studied other religions how much some of the other great religious leaders did not match up to Jesus. I had always assumed at some level years and years ago, I'd assumed that Jesus, you know, he's kind of like our Western Messiah figure. But if you're from the Middle East, you got Muhammad. And you're from Southeast Asia, you got, you've got the, the Hindu gods and Krishna and so forth, Buddha. And that all of them were kind of alike. And the more I've studied, the more i found they really are different, significantly different, okay? So don't be offended if I make comments about, or whatever I share about some others, it'll, they'll just be truthful statements, all right? What makes Jesus different? Number one, what makes Christianity different is Jesus, and so seven things that make Jesus different. Number one, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Do you know there's no other great religious figure in history that ever fulfilled prophecy? With the exception of John the Baptist, who fulfilled it in relationship to Jesus. There was no prophecy of Muhammad coming. There was no prophecy of Buddha or Krishna. There just weren't. The idea of foretelling the future, this is something unique in the Christian world, the Christian faith. There are no prophecies in Hinduism, I mean, and in Islam, oh, they say someday the world will end, something like that, but not specific like what we talk about. With Jesus, there were over 300 prophecies made of his coming, of the coming Messiah, how you'd identify him. Over 50 that were really clear. Some of those 300 are a little bit obscure, but over 50 that are pretty clear. And a number of them that are, in, that are indisputable that even the skeptics won't argue about. To capture how interesting this is, there was a professor out at Westmont College, which is in Santa Barbara, California. And he had one semester, the graduate class in, in statistics. They figured, what are the probabilities of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that nobody argues about, nobody disagrees with. Everybody agrees he did it. And they did a statistical uh, analysis of what are the possibilities. And so the prophecies they came up with, they weren't debatable. He'd be born in Bethlehem. They didn't say he's born of a virgin. That's one that gets debated. Let's just say, what's the probability someone will never be born in Bethlehem? Ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. Be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The money, the money that he has betrayed will be thrown into the house of the Lord and later uh, used to buy a potter's field. That he would die by his hands and his feet being pierced. And that he would die between thieves. And they just, so these just these basic prophecies. Nobody, nobody disputes any of these. But they figured out the statistical probability of it. And the number will blow your mind. Because the number of someone fulfilling that by chance is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Who can, who can, who can uh, uh, tell us what number that is? Greg's not here, so nobody can, all right? Uh, <laughs> okay, I don't know the name of it, but one, that's a big number. I mean, that's bigger than our national debt. That number is so huge that to understand it properly, they gave an illustration. And they said, Let's, how many, if we had silver dollars, how many would, what volume would that be? One in 10 to the 70. Now, for those of you who, you're, you know, I know probably a lot of you have never seen a silver dollar. It's four times the size of a quarter. And for those of you who've never seen a quarter, it's a little bit, it's, a, <laughs> it's smaller than a credit card, but a little bit thicker. Um, but a silver dollar, four up, if you imagine, 
10 to 17, can you imagine, for instance, silver dollars? You filled this room up. And the idea of one of them would be different. One would be different. All of them would be the same, except one would be different. Maybe put a red dot on one. Blindfold a person and can find one. The odds of him picking the right one by chance. But you'd have to do more than fill up this room to get one ten to seventeenth power. Matter of fact, you'd have to do more than I drove out here today, down was it Federer Road or something, and and down that you know you pass all these uh, you know big lawns and farmland. You'd have to cover more than all the land that I saw driving down Federer Road. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine filling all the? I mean, that's like a big Easter egg hunt type thing, you know? I mean, filling it. Everything there, covering the whole properties, all the properties with silver dollars. One of them's different. You're blindfolded. You can pick one. But that's still not good enough. To do this, you'd have to do more than cover all that farm. You'd have to do more than cover, Franklin County. What county are we in here? We're in Franklin. You'd have to do more than cover Franklin. You'd have to do more than cover Ohio. You'd have to cover the state of Texas. Two feet deep with silver dollars. Texas is a big state. If you don't believe that, just ask a Texan. They'll tell you. <laughs> Texas is a big state. You cover the thing two feet deep with silver dollars. All of them are the same. One is marked different. You can fly anywhere over in a helicopter. They drop you down, and you, you'd wander around anywhere you want. You pick up one. That's the odds of Jesus fulfilling those eight prophecies. It's pretty spectacular. I encourage people, I wouldn't bet all your money that you'd pick the right one, and I sure wouldn't bet your soul on it. Jesus fulfilled prophecies unlike any other person who's ever lived. Second thing about Jesus is he claimed to be God. Do you know Muhammad never claimed to be God? Buddha kind of, he said, we're all divine. Everybody's there. He didn't, Buddha didn't believe in a like an almighty God. He they're all divine. It's kind of like an agnostic religion or a spirit religion, shall we say. Um, in these great religious leaders, Moses never claimed to be God. Abraham never claimed to be God. But Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. Here he was. I mean, a man just like you or me. You stand there talking to him, and he'd say such things as, the day's going to come. When everybody who's in the graves is going to hear my voice, and they're going to come forth, and they're going to be judged by me. The Father's given me all judgment. I'm going to judge every human being. And he's done that so that all people might honor me in the same way they honor the Father. Wow. That's pretty heavy. You ought to treat me the same way you treat God. You ought to honor me. You ought to worship me. As a matter of fact, Jesus was the one figure in Scripture who accepted worship. Angels appeared. They didn't receive worship. The apostles, people bowed down before Paul and Peter. They said, rise up, I'm just a man. But Jesus received worship because he was indeed the, the divine Son of God. You could say, I and the Father are one. He, he claimed to be, have this power. He claimed to be the creator, or John at least did. John, in writing the prologue to him and in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that came into being. And the Word, verse 14 tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory is the only begotten from the Father. Jesus made claims to, to deity in such a way that people wanted to stone him. They thought he was blaspheming. And ultimately, is that not the reason he was, he was uh, accused and tried, convicted to be crucified? Remember the high priest stood and he said, I adjure you, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, I am, just as you say, I am. And the high priest tore his robe. What more need do we have witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. See, they understood the Christ. Again, one of the prophecies that we've referred to, I didn't refer to, but Isaiah 9, verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
They understood this about him. Jesus was claiming to be God. Do you know the other leaders maybe said, follow God, follow God, worship God. Do you know that I believe the number one thing Jesus Christ told people to do was either one or two, just by, by pure number, was this, follow me, follow me. Others say, follow God, follow the light, follow the divine. Jesus said, follow me. And he was claiming as such to have that authority to be honored as God. Well, it's been said amazing claims require amazing evidence. So what was the evidence Jesus gave? And that is this, the third thing about Jesus, the third thing that makes Jesus unique amongst all these great religious leaders is he performed these mighty miracles. If you were to ask a Muslim, what miracle did Muhammad perform? They'd say, well, he gave us the Quran. He gave us the book. And I started thinking to myself, okay, lots of people write books. I've written a couple books. In my case, they were miracles, but I don't know about it, you know. Uh, you know, But lots of people write books. Is that really your evidence? Is that your proof? Is that your, is that your attesting miracle to show this guy's really from God? And by the way, technically, he didn't even write it. Other, he recited. Others actually wrote it down and collected it. Buddha, what miracles did Buddha do? None. There are no miracles recorded that Buddha ever performed until after Christian missionaries began to show up in, in, in his part of the world. And then the preceding, in the years following that, they were, oh yeah, Buddha did that too. Oh yeah, Buddha was born of a virgin, even though he was like the eighth child in his family. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> oh yeah, Buddha did this, Buddha did that. But no, before the message of Jesus came, uh-uh. He was just he was a man who gave wise sayings and was thought to be had great insight. But Jesus did attesting miracles. In Mark chapter two, um, maybe you saw the scene in the chosen if you've watched that that show. It's so good, but it it really depicts it beautifully. Jesus was um, he was teaching in his house, and the house was filled with people, and they, these people had this paralyzed guy they wanted to bring to him and to be healed, and so they bring him, and the house is full, so they said, okay, plan B, let's try that, oh, let's just dig a hole in the roof, and we'll let him down through the roof. I, they go, why didn't I think of that, you know? Anyway, so they dig a hole, and Jesus is teaching, and some dust falls down, and a little bit of commotion up there, and suddenly here comes this guy down. They're letting him down on this pallet, on this, this stretcher. And Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees who were watching, and they were upset, they said, oh my goodness. Why does he say that? No one can forgive sins but God alone. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Who does he think he is saying such a thing? And they were murmuring and complaining and building their case against Jesus. And Jesus knew what they were saying, and he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Arise, take up your pallet and walk. But just so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And the guy did just that. You see, his miracles were attesting evidence that his claims were true. His claims were true. Jesus was, uh, John, he was preceded by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was announcing the Messiah, and he must have, you know, obviously thought, this is going to be great. The Messiah is coming. Everybody's looking forward to the coming Messiah. Deliverance from the Roman oppression and so forth. And, and yet, then John got arrested. And he's thrown in, in prison, and prison was an ugly, dirty, dark, stinky, probably insect and barn rat infested type place was not a nice place to be and i don't know if john began to become a bit discouraged or what 
But he sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah, or should we be looking for someone else? I don't know. In my mind, I just wonder if John was thinking, you know, this, this hasn't turned out the way I thought it would be. And that's a common experience that we have, isn't it? That sometimes we, we come to Christ, and we expect things to turn out a certain way, and sometimes they don't turn out the way that we thought they would, and we're disappointed. And John may very well have been disappointed, but he sent his followers to ask, are you really the Messiah, or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, Jesus did not rebuke him for his, his doubts and his questions. Jesus could have said, John, just have faith. Stop doubting. How dare you doubt? Naughty, naughty. He could have scolded him for his unbelief. Sometimes we do that. We scold someone for their doubts. Or he could have said, John, don't you remember when I got baptized? You were right there. Don't you remember that dove coming down? I'll bet you felt something. I'll bet you got goosebumps on your, the back, on your back and your arms that day. Remember the goosebumps, John. That's the proof that it was really true. He didn't say something like that. Rather, he simply said this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 4 verses. Go tell John. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the man who does not stumble over me. That's how he, that, that was what he, he provided the evidence. Go tell him what you've seen with your own eyes. I, my, attest, my miracles attest to who I am. My miracles are the proof and the evidence. I am exactly who I say I am. I am the Messiah. Well, that's not the last thing, though, that makes Jesus unique. That was what, number three? How about number four? Fourth thing that makes Jesus, he lived a sinless life, a sinless, good. I, I was talking when I said sinful. He didn't. He led a sinless life. Now, again, this is where some people don't like to hear, especially if they follow another religion, how really sinful and corrupt some of these other people were. I mean, come on. Some of the great religious leaders through history were some of the worst sinners. They did things you've never done. I don't know, unless, unless some of you have besieged a city and, and overran it and killed all the men and then raped all the women and let, let, your, let your army rape all the women, then you haven't done some of the things Muhammad did. And unless you killed your brother-in-law to get his wife, you haven't done what Muhammad did. These are things he did. Unless you, in your 50s, married a, a seven-year-old girl, you haven't done what Muhammad did. Folks, this is who he was. And somehow, somehow, over a billion people think this is holy. He's a holy man and a righteous man and a good man. And there's an element of life. And these, by the way, none of these things are things he ever apologized for. David, you know, in our religion, David was, you know, he, he you know, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed to cover it up. But David did repent, acknowledge that was wrong. As a matter of fact, that was his great sin. That was his great downfall. But Muhammad, the things he did, he never apologized. Those, those are considered good, righteous, holy. He was a holy man, and he was a holy man when he did all that stuff. You go through the great religious leaders, and, and all of them, all of them, Buddha, Buddha went on a search to discover life and truth. He went on a search to discover all of what life is about. And what is the purpose of life and the meaning of life? Do you know the day he commenced his search? The day he commenced his search and left and went on this 15-year journey find the truth, was the day his wife was in labor with their first child. He left. He was gone for 15 years, searching for the meaning of life while his wife was left behind to raise their first child. What would we call that today? How would we look upon a person who did that? What would you think today if some guy, if, if you, if, you know, you, I, I say the college students, if you know your, your 
doormate, and you're talking to her, and you say, you know, you don't talk about your dad. Oh, yeah, my dad, I've never really met him yet. He's off on a journey to find himself. He left the day I was being, he left the day mom was in labor with me, so I've never met him. He's off on this journey to find him. I mean, we would call that what? Deadbeat dad? Irresponsible? Unfaithful? Jesus Christ was without sin. Jesus Christ never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. The people who, his enemies knew this. Judas, after he betrayed him, what did he say? He re, I sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood, he said of him as he threw the money back in the temple. Pilate said, you want to crucify me, you do it. I wash my hands because I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt. And he washed his hands of it. Of course, they hardly knew him, but how about the people who did know him? Peter referred to Jesus as being holy, innocent, undefiled, like a lamb unblemished. The writer of the Hebrews said that he was tempted in all things and yet without sin. Paul understood Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5. He said of him that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Those who knew Jesus both his enemies and his followers, no one ever found a sin he committed. You say, wait a minute. Didn't he drive people out of the temple? Didn't he make a, didn't he overturn tables? Didn't he, didn't he kind of lose his temper that day? Well, the scripture tells us that zeal for the father's house consumed him. He was, yes, he was angry. He was angry at the religious oppression. Remember the tables he overturned were the people who were selling doves. Who would buy a dove in the temple? The poor people. If you could afford it, you would buy a lamb for the sacrifice. But if you were poor and you didn't have the means, then you bought a, a, a dove. And, and these people were, who were selling these doves and the money changers were exploiting, not only exploiting the religious word, they were exploiting the poor. People were required to offer religious uh, uh, offerings. They had to give it in the shekel. But the shekel was not widely used in the culture of the time. And so they'd have to come, they'd bring their Roman money, for instance, and they'd have to trade it for shekels with the money changers there at the temple. And what did they do? They ripped them off. It wasn't a fair exchange. They had them over, over a barrel. You know, kind of like if you're buying a hot dog at an Ohio State game. You know, six bucks for the hot dog, eight bucks for that Coke, you know, or whatever. They have you over a barrel. You can't, the only one, only place you can go, and they rip you off. And Jesus, these people who are coming in sincerity to worship God, being taken advantage of and oppressed, yes, that bothered Jesus. It did. Was it a sin? Not at all. Zeal for the Father's house consumed me. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a robber's den. So Jesus himself without sin. The only one who's ever been that way. And this is important. Why? Because that leads to point number five, I believe we're on. Point number five is that Jesus is the only one who died for our sins. You know how other people died? Other religious leaders died? Muhammad, they conquered this one city. They killed all the men. They, they, he let a couple women live. And one of them he took as his servant. And she was, you know, he, he made a big mistake because he had her cook food for him. And she was angry and she put poison in the food. He got sick from it. He didn't die immediately, but he died. He never recovered from that poisoning incident, and that's what killed him. That's how he died. Buddha? He just died of old age. He, 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 I mean, he's probably 80 years old, but he got some dysentery, and he, you know, it's, it's upset, you know, like, die. a lot of people die by dysentery, and that's how Buddha died. Krishna probably never really lived. They said, you know, he's like 50,000 years ago. Probably never was not a real being. But in the story, the way he, he, he died in a hunting accident, literally, he got tired. He laid down behind some bush to take a nap, and evidently someone saw his leg or something, and they were out hunting, and they 
They saw him, they thought, wow, there's an, you know, they thought there's an animal behind him. Took, shot with a bow and arrow, peeked behind the bishop. Oops, I just killed Krishna. Big mistake. Jesus, how did he die? No one took his life. He offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He could have avoided what happened to him. He had so many opportunities to avoid the cross. When, he, when they're going to Jerusalem, he pointed that out. He said, I'm going down, I'm going to die down there. He said, Peter said, No, Lord, don't, don't, that shall not happen to you. He could have turned around then, but he didn't. When he got down at the Last Supper, he announced to Judas, Go do what you got to do. He could have fled then. When he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, that night as he was praying in the garden, he knew what was coming. He could have run. It was dark. He could have gotten out of there before he came to be arrested. When he stood before the Sanhedrin, they said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Instead of saying, I am, he could have said, No, 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 you got this all wrong. I'm not saying that. And they would have had to let him go. When he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, Hey, my wife wants me to wash my hands. My wife doesn't want to. Give me a reason to let you go. And Jesus didn't. He said, You have no authority over me. You have no authority except what God has given you. You don't hold my fate in your hands. When he stood before Herod, Herod was kind of saying, do a miracle for me. I'll let you go. Jesus didn't say a word. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels. And they would have come and rescued him, but he didn't. No one took Jesus' life. He gave his life. He offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. That's the powerful news. Now, it's important that we understand the previous point. Because if Jesus had sinned himself, then he could not have died for our sins. Remember, the Bible says the wages or the punishment of sin is death. There, sin requires the judgment of God. Jesus, the only reason Jesus was able to die for our sins is because he didn't need to die for his own sins. Had he been a sinner, he would have had to die for himself. See, I can't die for your sins because I got my own. You can't die for mine because you got yours. But Jesus had no sin. He was, as we said, holy, innocent, undefiled, a spotless lamb of God, able to give himself as a sacrifice for us. How's this work? I grew up in a liturgical church where we recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And we talked about how Christ died for sins, but never got it, never understood it, never knew what that meant. I don't think I knew what it meant until I discovered that I was a sinner, which, by the way, I grew up not really believing that. Not really. I mean, everybody believes they're a sinner, but not understanding the weight of what it meant, not understanding that meant I was guilty before God. You would have asked me, Tom, are you a sinner? I said, sure, everybody's a sinner. You have said, Tom, are you guilty before God? Have you broken God's law? No. What makes you think that? I'm not a bad person. You see, I didn't understand what it meant to be what I was acknowledging as a sinner. But once I did understand that, once I began to under, God began to convict me that there's something in my life that's not right, that I've done wrong before God, then suddenly I began to understand what it means that Christ died for my sins. It's as if you have the holy, innocent, undefiled, spotless Lamb of God over there, and over here is me and you, and we're guilty in deeds, broken God's law and things we've done, things we've said, our, our tongue has committed sins, our heart, our motives committed sins. And it's if God reaches in and just takes all that up out of us, and then he put it over on Jesus Christ. Jesus died for my sins. He was on the cross, owing, paying a debt he did not owe, because we owed a debt we could never pay. He was on the cross with my sin, not his own, with my sin, for my good, Bearing my judgment. That's what it meant. Christ died for our sins. No one else has ever done that. There are plenty of people out there who will tell you how to live. 
plenty of people out there will want to talk about the meaning of life or what's moral, what's good. There's plenty of religions out there. There's no religion and no religious leader who gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins. Remember, I'm not talking about martyrdom. There were some people who were martyred. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus chose to give his life for our sake. And he died for our sins, and this is important. It's unique. It's one of the things about him that, that sets him apart from anyone else. Well, that leads to the next one. What number are we on? Number six, only Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. People ask me, I mean, usually, to be honest, on campus, I don't have time to go through all these things. So people ask me, Tom, what makes you think your religion's any better than anyone else's? I said, well, for starters, our guy, is, our guy rose from the dead. You know? That's a big thing. That was the message of the gospel. In, that was the message of the apostles in the book of Acts. The message of the apostles, Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. God raised him up. That needs to be our message. It's not just kind of like a little addendum after we share how Christ died for our sins. We said, oh, yeah, and by the way, he rose from the dead. No, the resurrection, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. This is what sets him apart. Every other tomb is occupied. You may visit it as part of your worship. If you want to be a good Muslim, you go to, uh, to the city of Mecca where Muhammad's tomb is. If you're Buddhist, of course, he was cremated, so his, he would just be ashes. But he didn't rise. And, but Jesus, if you go to Jerusalem, you find the tomb is empty because he rose. But did it happen? Is it real? Did he really rise from the dead? Yes, he did. It wasn't just he lives on in our hearts. It wasn't just this is a nice story. It wasn't just let's pretend that he did. It's the, it's the evidence. It's the heart of the resurrection and the promise because he lives, we shall live also. When people ask, would well, you have any evidence for the resurrection? I say, yeah, I've got seven facts I want to tell you. And you're sitting there thinking, uh-oh, Tom's, he's got seven, he's only on point six right now, and now this subheading's got seven to it. Well, this is going to be fast. And uh, you, if you want to write these down, you can. But to me, this is, this is overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. How do we prove any fact of history? We, we go to the people who were there and who saw it. We listen to their testimony, and we ask, is their testimony credible? One way we examine their credibility is through cross-examination. We push back on it. We, we test their character. We test the truthfulness of their story. This is how we determine it in a court of law, and this is how throughout history, this is how we know. So seven, seven facts about the resurrection. You ready? Number one, there was a man named Jesus who lived. No one, by the way, no, one will, no historian, even a skeptic, will will. will will really dispute any of these points. Number one, there's a man named Jesus. Number two, he died. He died and he was buried. Or no, he, no, excuse me, he just died. Number three, he was buried. Okay? Three facts. He lived, died, he was buried. Number four, three days later, the tomb he was buried in was empty. The body was no longer there. The body was gone. Fact, reality. Number five, over the next 40 days, on at least 10 separate occasions, multiple numbers of people claimed to have seen him, talked with him, touched him, eaten with him, etc. Almost always more than one person. At one time, up to 500 people. And you have an example like Thomas said, I'm not going to believe in him unless I can see the very nail hole in his hand and the spear wound in his side. And indeed, eight days later, because they were telling him he'd risen, he said, I'm not going to believe that. I followed him before, and they, I, they killed him. I'm not going to believe that anymore. And eight days later... He, he saw Jesus risen, saw the nail, saw the hand, came up, repented of his unbelief, took the gospel to the land of India where he died for his 
firm conviction and proclamation that Jesus was the one true God who'd risen from the dead. Number six. All right, let me say this one. He lived, he died, he was buried. Tomb was empty. People claimed to see him. Number six. For claiming he'd risen from the dead, these people suffered greatly. They were beaten. They were their property was confiscated. They were thrown in this dungeon. Ultimately, they were put to death, executed. Cruelly. Cruelly. And number seven. There's not a single example of anyone who claims to have seen Jesus risen from the dead who ever went back on that testimony, even when faced with the ultimate cross-examination of change your story or die. That's the ultimate. Stop saying it or die. Not a single person ever did. To me, that's compelling doesn't force you to believe it, but by any other standard, any other act of history that wasn't so miraculous, you'd say, that's strong evidence. If you were an attorney and you said, you got, you got hundreds of eyewitnesses, you've got over 10 different examples of this, you have people who would, who would hold to their story even to the point of death, those people knew what they were saying. You don't die for something you don't believe to be true. Now, by the way, if I die for the Christian faith, does that, does that prove it's true? No. No. Because, but I'm not claiming to have ever seen Jesus. I'm not claiming to have seen the resurrection. See the difference? They were claiming to be dying not just for something they believed, but for something they were an eyewitness of a fact. They saw an event happen. They testified to what they saw, and that's what they gave their life for. Final thing that makes Jesus different. Are you ready? He loves us. He loves us. Do you know not every religion teaches God loves you? Did you know that? It's true. In a lot of religions, God is not, I mean, God doesn't have love. He might be benevolent in the sense that he's kind, but God is, like in the Islam religion, which is the second biggest religion of the world, God, God is not seen as someone who has any affection for you, that he cares for you, that he loves you. He's seen as a king. You're a servant. Do you know in Israel, or in Islam, one of the sins that if you do this sin, if you do the sin, you cannot be forgiven for it. You know what it is? To call God Father. To call God Father. Well, we call God Father because He wants us to, we, we do more than, we call Him Abba Father, Daddy Father. Our God is a relational God. God so loved the world, He gave His Son for us. Jesus coming to earth, living amongst us, is a demonstration of the love of God, that He left the throne and He came down to be among us. In other religions, God, God is so far, He's so far away on that throne, it's like He's not even really personal. And, and I, I always assumed, you know, I just grew up in the culture where, it's, of course, God loves us. Of course, he does. And yet, this is a unique teaching to the Judeo-Christian religion, that God loves us in, a, in an, an, an emotional way, in a fatherly way, in a way that truly cares. When Jesus came to earth to become one of us, that means he went through what you and I went through. As we said earlier, he was tempted in all things like we're tempted. That's right. He was tempted in the same things you're tempted in. He was tempted to get discouraged, tempted to get angry, tempted to, tempted to sin, tempted by girls, tempted by, by the, all these things. He was tempted, but he never gave in to it. He probably had times he had an upset stomach. He probably... One thing we know, he never got COVID, but he probably got the flu, you know? Wasn't around back then. He probably got the flu. He had, he had problems. Probably had people, when he was a kid growing up, people, you know, laugh at him, reject him, pick on him, things like this. I don't, you know, I don't know. 
Jesus lived like one of us. And to me, it demonstrates the love of God. You know, when you talk to a Muslim, they say, they talk a lot about how they pray. One of the pillars of Islam, you must pray, say your prayers five times a day. And to them, that's a very important thing. And they talk a lot about it. If you ever encounter a Muslim, they, 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 I say boast about it, not necessarily in an arrogant way, but they, it's, it's very important. We pray. They don't pray the way you do. They don't pray the way you do. You, if, if you ever talk to a Muslim who says prayer and you, and you say, well, may I say a prayer? And if they allow you, because they usually don't, but if they allow you, and you pray out loud in front of them, that's the end say, wow, we don't pray like that. You pray like, you pray like God's really listening. You pray like God cares. They won't say it, but you pray like God's your father. And he cares about what you're saying. It's different. Our religion's different. Jesus makes it different. Religion really is the attempt of humans to try and Reach up and be good enough in the eyes of God. Christianity really is God reaching down to us. And they're not the same. They're not the same. A lot of people say it's about relationship, not religion. I use the word religion because so people know what we're talking about, you know. But it is different. It isn't. It is relationship. It's not religion like the other religions of the world. It's awesome what we have. Next time someone asks you what makes your religion any better than anyone else's, all right, you got seven things. You can pick any one of these. You can say all seven. You can pick any one of them, whichever one means something to you, but it really is what makes Jesus different. Amen? Father in heaven, we bless you today. We love you. We thank you that you love us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We praise you. Lord, it didn't have to be this way. The other religions of the world, is that we're just servants of a king. We're just here only for him. There's no real love there. There's no real relationship there. Jesus, you urged us. You said we could call you friend. You're our Lord, but, we, but you call us your friend. Father, you, you are God. You're the king. You're the ruler of all, and yet, you said we could call you Abba. And we bless you, and we thank you, and we worship you. And we thank you for this great faith you've given us, this great religion, this great relationship you've given us. Father, I pray you would help us to enter into the fullness of the joy of this, and that every day we would walk with you in this fullness. And I pray that when we encounter other people, not with arrogance, people who don't, we just want them to have what we have. And not not that we're arrogant, we think we're better. We're not better. We do believe you're better. Jesus, I don't claim to be better than anyone else, but I do claim, Jesus, there's no one like you. And for this, we give you praise and we desire the world to know. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen.